This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Home Gadget Geek show number 559, recorded on January 19th, 2023. Here on Home Gadget Geeks, we cover all the favorite tech gadgets that find their way into your home. News, reviews, product updates, and conversation, all for the average tech guy. I'm your host, Jim Carlson, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in a, in a chilly and snowy and got some ice, Bellevue, Nebraska. Of course, we post the show with some world-class show notes, and we'll have a few for you tonight. Christian's got some great notes out there. Uh, we'll post them out there at the, out at the AverageGuy.tv. Big thanks to John Maddox, who joined us last week from Channels, just a, a good friend of the show, and we had a fun conversation about what's new at Channels. If you haven't checked it out yet, head out to uh, theaverageguy.tv slash HGG558. And you can catch up on that conversation. Uh, and John, thanks for coming on. Big thanks to our Patreon subscribers, which uh, help help make all the magic happen here on Home Gadget Geeks. And if you're finding value in the podcast and you want to give that value back, of course, you can do that through Patreon. Head out to theaverageguy.tv slash Patreon. Of course, you guys know another a big supporter and 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 um, big contributor to what we do here is Christian Johnson. And uh, Christian, welcome back to Home Gadget Geeks. Hey, thanks, Jim. It's great to be back. And uh, I, I can't believe that we're in 2023 and we're still talking about password managers as this <laughs> like proverbial difficult technology. But OK, here we are um, Well, in a little bit. So we're going to talk about LastPass and uh, specifically we're going to as we think about what's what do we do next? We've Christian wanted to talk about Bitwarden. So that's coming up. Christian, let's back up, though, just a little bit, because as you say that, I don't think, you know, we're at a spot where we're arguing about what to do anymore. We know, you know, password managers are out there. We know uh, why we use them and the complexity of them and such. The problem is for me is actually the opposite is that I'm having a hard time coming like the, the work effort to come off of one to me seems like a lot. Now, maybe, Maybe it's easier than I'm thinking, and I hope you're you're going to convince me of that as we're talking through. But let's back up a little bit. Let's talk what from from what you know, what went wrong at last at LastPass? I mean, they were friends of the show. They were a sponsor here for a lot of years. We knew them from the inside. A lot of great things going on over there, and maybe some purchases and some sales and some other things happening. Let things go a little loose. But what do we know? Yeah. Um, so. Definitely a lot to unpack on the show tonight. I'm going to do my best to kind of walk you through um, what's going on with LastPass, what's going on with some of the other uh, password managers that are near and dear to people's hearts. What are some of the things to be looking out for in evaluating them? Because I think a lot of folks have just, there's just this wall of buy this password manager, buy this one. What are the feature differences, et cetera? So I'm really going to try and break down how they are evolving and what are some of the key discriminators for them. I'm also going to talk a little bit about what are some of the principles uh, from a cryptography standpoint around what the password managers in 2023 are doing today and, and maybe how that differs from what they were doing a decade ago. Um, and then I will also talk about my journey um, migrating from uh, in this case, from uh, RoboForm to Bitwarden and uh, making that a fairly um, pain-free process. So I believe kind of one of the great things is that if you know what you're doing and you do it 
correctly and take the right precautions, it actually, you can migrate to between any of the the big password managers out there with fairly little ease. So I'll make sure we cover that um, tonight as well. Um, but what do we know about LastPass? So this is really what people think of as a uh, second breach. And um, I do want to give a shout out to the um, Almost Secure blog. Uh, just go to palant.info, P-A-L-A-N-T.info. A um, lot of great write-up and discussion on both just the LastPass sagas as well as a lot of other security topics. Um, they do a really nice job breaking down what's going on in, in fairly digestible terms. Um, so some of the things I'm going to quote and talk about with just where are we with what happened in December of um, 22, uh, reference and credit to um, that blog. So um, this really started when LastPass made an updated vulnerability disclosure for lack of a better word or breach disclosure in December, um, which they couched as this kind of secondary independent event to when their kind of development environment and some of their source code and technical secret sauce got um, uh, compromised and stolen back in August. Um, and I, one of the things I really like about what this author characterizes is that um you know, it's not really a separate event. It's really clear that they failed to contain the first breach and really clean that up effectively. Um, and so some of what I'm going to talk about with what went wrong with LastPass, I think also is applicable to many of the other password managers over the last 10 years. So if you look at other vulnerabilities and problems and write-ups that have been done, I'll talk a little bit about some of the ones that happened with RoboForm as a kind of example as well. But many of them kind of come back to some of these central themes where you would look at a password manager, let's just say in 2013, 2014, they'd all advertise to you kind of the same buzzwords, right? So everyone's going to talk about 256 AES encryption and we're using military grade encryption and gee, doesn't that sound special? Well, for the average guy that doesn't really understand what's behind that, gee, if it's good enough for the military, it must be good enough for me, right? So that has been one of the most kind of frequent sales pitches that you see in all of this. Um, and the sales pitches have gotten more clever as they take technical primitives and find the right buzzwords to match to them. So some of the other things you'll see um, that are fun in the last pass um, breach write-up is not only are they talking about 256-bit encryption, but they talk about, you know, zero-knowledge architecture. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means because it's very much the foundation of how all these password managers are working today, especially ones that are the, you know, sync from anywhere, which really became a hot feature starting somewhere in the 2014-2015 era where, hey, I want to be able to store my passwords securely no matter what device I'm on and use them everywhere and not worried about having those passwords get owned. Um, so that's where the concept of, well, you need a zero knowledge architecture to do that kind of comes into play. Um, so while that all sounds kind of really assuring and well and good, um, some of the key things that I think consistently get overlooked if you're not paying attention is that password managers foundationally rely on one simple thing and one simple thing only the strength of the master key. Um, and 
if you have created a master password that is not at the complexity requirement that it should be, um, it really doesn't matter what option you go with, you're going to end up in trouble. Why? Um, Because the whole concept of what zero knowledge essentially means, zero knowledge encryption, is that the password is never stored. So there's no system to go hack the password. It's basically you need to go hack the human if you want to get the password. So the, the most foundational concept is that your password, it's never stored. What that means is passwords are authentication. They're not encryption. And that's a kind of foundational concept that may get lost in translation for the average guy. So traditionally, passwords deal with authentication. Once you're authenticated, you can then have certain levels of privilege or access, which we'd talk about as authorization. But those kind of sit in juxtaposition to um, cryptography, which really deals with confidentiality, integrity, um, constructs, and non-repudiation. So when we talk about zero-knowledge encryption, um, one of the schemes that's used to provide a kind of zero-knowledge architecture is that your master password is used to derive an encryption key locally in your password manager. So what that means is the encryption key isn't actually generated and derived until the master password is known and presented to your local client. Um, And that encryption key stays locally with you on the client. So you're never going to store what the equivalent of a private key is on the server side. So these are two really important primitive foundations to understanding how any password manager like LastPass, like their cloud version um, works. And so what the server should only ever be storing in a password manager is essentially the encrypted bits after it's been encrypted locally, then transmitted on the server. So the tenet is you better already be encrypted at rest before you even transmit those bits over the wire for the remote end server to store it. And so what this means is that no matter what device you're on, each local client is going to generate its own encryption key and decryption mechanism based on the zero knowledge that you present to it, which is your master password. And that's how the client then retrieves those encrypted bits back from the server, decomposes it with its own private key, and gets back your plain text password that you care about for the various websites. So in a nutshell, that is the whole foundation for why people place this inherent trust in, well, you know, it's the classic catchphrase of exactly what we're reading about with LastPass, right? Well, I don't care if LastPass ever gets hacked because, well, it's just a bunch of encrypted bits they got, right? Well, what we really found out in the breach is, yes, but here are some caveats. And those caveats you may really care about depending on who you are, especially if you're a business executive or a security-minded individual or someone who is worth a hacker's time to really go after because you have things of inherent value. Um, And so there are a couple of key things about LastPass's strategy in the last five years that is really important to understanding this breach. The first one goes back to one of the beginning concepts that I talked about, which is that if you do not have a um, strong, complex master password, you really don't have security as far as these password manager um, schemes are concerned. Um, And with that, 
you want to ensure there is a minimum complexity for any master password so that the average consumer who's not tracking these things and loves to type in all sorts of easy, non-complex stuff is not giving themselves in trouble. So the first thing about the LastPass breach is that it wasn't until 2018 that LastPass introduced a requirement that the default character minimum passwords were 12 characters in length. And so that wasn't done until 2018. Furthermore, you know, as as we've had LastPass on the show many times, they had a pretty large user base by the time we got to 2018. And one of the key aspects and discoveries about this disclosure was that none of the folks up until 2018 were required to re-baseline to that minimum password complexity. So that means they turned it on for new users going forward, and they probably didn't want to deal with what they amount to a bad customer experience by having to force everyone to re-migrate, alter passwords, you know, play 20 questions with their customers. So suffice to say, in the corpus of knowledge, um, lots of passwords, master passwords, probably aren't at the complexity that you need to trust them for your individual security. Now, what was the actual just raw LastPass breach? They basically stole um, backups of all of their vault data for all of their customers on a on a cloud provider. So it wasn't in their on-prem, which they try to use as a nice deflection of like, oh, it wasn't in our environment. It was off in the cloud as if that somehow made it better, right? So that like one of the things I like about this blog is it really breaks down the press release somewhat systemically and talks about some of the substance customer trust issues um, that are at play here. Um, but what's notable is that essentially the, the raw premise of what we're talking about is they have everyone's vault data. Why that's important is that at a very basic level, uh, the hackers who now have that data can interrogate it as much as they want. So if you want to start running crackers against master passwords in a um, high-performance compute environment with lots of GPUs and lots of other things, like there's not going to be some web server saying, hey, you, you've exceeded the rate limit. Take it easy on trying this master password. Like, no, they're going to be able to sit there and run targeted cracking against specific entities that are of interest. Okay, well, you might ask yourself, how would they know in all of this um, vault data who's considered a target of interest? Well, one of the key things that is utterly frustrating about the disclosure aspects of the LastPass vulnerability is that, again, one would think that every single field that you ever send to LastPass is encrypted, right? Right? Like, hello, you th- you're a company, you, right? You think, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But... Um, And you'll see this in the show notes, like part of what the security community has been researching is as part of this vulnerability and disclosure, they they um, analyzed the web vault format of their own vaults and only uh, eight of the 38 fields are encrypted. So things like the password, no kidding, are going to be encrypted. Um, things like the username were encrypted. Okay, great. Things like notes encrypted. Great. But what are some things that aren't encrypted? 
Well, one of the big ones that is a big sticking point for the InfoSec community is URLs. Well, why does that matter? Mm-hmm. It's not, if I, I can think of it two ways. One way I can think of it is, well, there's ad servers all following me around the internet all over the place. And so, sure, people are trying to monetize what websites I go to and why. But think about this from the adversary perspective. Adversary perspective is, oh, now I know exactly what websites you're storing your stuff in. Let's say they were unsuccessful at your master password. That's okay. They can now go to the targeted bank account or the targeted whatever it is that you have put info services on, and they can just start attacking that directly, which is probably in many average consumer cases, just a username and a password. So maybe you didn't turn 2FA on in that website because maybe they didn't have their their game together yet with multi-factor, right? And so now what's turned into my big, bad, invisible master password is really just, nope, you've gave you've given the attacker kind of the blueprint to go find where you are elsewhere on the website and continue their exploits. So to me, that's one big kind of epic fail is like the, the for LastPass, especially to brag on AES 256 encryption and not use it for all relevant data that you would consider sensitive to me uh, is a big miss here. Um, so that's one area of concern. The second area of concern is really talking about the core technology behind, uh, again, how do you store the representation of the master password on disk or in memory? And so there is a uh, cryptographic um, function standard known as PBKDF2 or password-based key derivation function version two, which you can go read the RFC for if you're so inclined. But put simply, it's a think of it as a modern cryptographic hashing function that is going to compute iterative hashes to make passwords very resistant to brute force attacks, whether that's dictionary attacks or rainbow attacks. So I want to break this down a little bit further. Traditionally, old school web 1.0 stuff, like the traditional, like, don't do this, it's bad, is you have a web server, you have a database server, and you store someone's username and password in plain text, person types in a password in um, in the web form, does a post request to the back end, and hey, if the password matches the password, authenticate them. Well, after folks got really tired of databases constantly being stolen with plain text passwords, people got a little bit smarter. We started using encryption and hashing functions to essentially say, don't store the password, store a hash in the database. What the hash essentially is, it's a one-way function, which means that if I type in my super turbo calculator password one, two, three, That's not what's getting stored in the database. What's getting stored in the database is a unique cryptographic string that can't be reversed. So I can't use that string to rederive the original password. But if I I type that exact password into your cryptographic function, it will always produce the same unique hash string. And that's how I know it's, quote, your password. Well, what became the problem with that was that as computers got more powerful, more sophisticated, more breaches happened. Hashes by themselves um, became an easy target because instead of just doing dictionary attacks, they did something called rainbow tables. And what a rainbow table was is let's pre-generate a list of tens of hundreds of millions of passwords and what their hashes are. 
And when a breach happens, I don't need to go brute force and do a bunch of hash math. I just need to see, hey, does this hash in the database exist in my rainbow table? And if it does, tell me what the plain text was that I originally computed from it. So folks said, okay, all right. So that's when things like salting and introducing randomness got in, involved so that, you know, the password may be the same, but if you didn't know the salt associated with the hash function, you weren't going to be able to just use a rainbow table against that um, database unless you had stole, uh, stolen the, the salt as well. Okay, great. So that's kind of like a classic 101 primer on the evolution of password authentication in web 1.0, right? Fast forward to password managers and this discussion a little bit. What's going on with the password-based key derivative function is that rather than just stopping at, I put my password into a hash function that has a salt and I'm done, that derivative function takes the output of that first hash and it keeps putting it back into the into the hash function. And it does this in some cases over 100,000 times before it stores that final hash output value in a database. What does this actually achieve? Um, it slows down the ability to, it makes you more resistant to dictionary and rainbow tax, right? It doesn't eliminate them, but it makes it much more resistant because you have to go through all those additional computations for each password or credential you are going to make a guess against. But furthermore, um, it, uh, it counteracts the evolution of hardware, right? So something totally tangential to password managers that you wouldn't intuitively think, oh, these things are related, but think about blockchain, right? Like what's, what's running blockchain right now in Bitcoin? GPUs, why? Because all of a sudden GPUs got really, really good <laughs> at computing hashes. So yeah, they're really good at running blockchain, but guess what? They're also really good at trying to crack passwords. Mm -hmm. So as hardware gets more advanced, we need to keep upping the cryptographic standards around hashes. So one of the cool things about uh, PBKDF2 is that while the spec and the standard is a known RFC thing, go read about it, go learn about it, the main configurable is how many iterations or how many times do you want to put that hash back through this function before you spit it out and save the result. And so one of the big kind of black eyes for LastPass here, bringing it all the way back to the breach, is that um, in their 2018 posture, when they updated to a minimum of 12, char uh, 12 characters for the master password, they also updated to a minimum of... Um, 100,000 iterations, which is kind of now the standard for many password managers for the KDF function. However, up until 2018, it was only 5,000, which maybe was a big number back then, but not such a big number now, right? Um, what's worse is that as part of this disclosure, it's become evident that many of the folks who, again, account users pre change in guidance 2018 
had KDF iterations as low as 500 in some cases, and they never got migrated to the new standard. And this is not something that a user should have to go in and think about. It should just happen for 100% of your customers. Um, so if you go look at OWASP, which is kind of an infosec industry standard for best practices and basic web security, their latest recommendation right now is 310,000 iterations for this function. So just to give you a sense, we're talking about customers out there now with leaked vaults that maybe had as low as 500 iterations, they're going to be way more susceptible to hackers just sitting there with throwing compute at it to crack that master password than if they had just done the right thing and gotten everyone to a higher KDF standard. Um, so that was really the second big aspect of this. Um, and so when you put it all in a bow, it's it just the the trickle of smoking gun problems with LastPass. So it's not like mm -hmm. today, all your passwords are out there in the plain text and this is the end of the world. But I think for LastPass as a company, there's a few problems here. Two breaches in a year, which really it's one breach that they didn't contain, but they chose to break it out as two events, which actually made the problem worse, I think, from a public relations standpoint, if nothing else. Two, you have a company that's not leveraging the encryption to encrypt all of the things, which is a miss. Three, you have not so great um, configuration standards for things like PBKDF2, which, hello, this is a company that focuses on doing nothing but password management. Like, get this right. This is not like, this is non negotiable uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so when you add those up in the trickle, and now you can go find things like what the vault format looks like, and you add this up with some of the other kind of vulnerabilities and techniques that an adversary would use to attack you on LastPass, it just, if you're, if, if, if you're someone that is storing passwords in the cloud through one of these password managers, and you're placing your trust in a company like this, for me, this is enough to be like, no, it's time to make a change. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely uh, covered in a wide variety of other InfoSec podcasts, news articles, et cetera. But yeah. part of what I wanted to walk through with the LastPass breach was not just, hey, here's what happened and here's why folks are upset. But I also want to make sure that folks are following what are kind of some of the basic foundational things that all password managers should be doing really well that are non-negotiables. Um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the consumer doesn't always know what the right question is to ask or to be looking for to make sure that their password manager is doing that. And so in the case of LastPass and a lot of the other ones, they publish white papers all day long. And you can go find a white paper for pretty much every password manager online. Um, but really seeing what they say in those papers and what they don't say tells you a lot about where you should be placing your trust. So Christian, a lot. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a longtime LastPass customer. They, like I said, I mean, it's been years since they were they sponsored the show, and and I think I was using it before then. I had a fairly, I'm not going to say the number, but I had a fairly long password in those days. Thinking about what I need to do now, like, so of course I've changed that password, right? Um, but did that, if being an old, being a being a old customer, is that enough? In the, in the, in the, I'm thinking about in the moment now. I'm thinking like, okay, right now, how do I protect myself? If I'm, if I'm thinking yeah. I've got passwords out there, even if I'm going to move, what, what, what do I need to do today? What you just said is one of the big 
um, concerns and fallacies of what I think a lot of users are taking away from this, right? They're thinking, oh, LastPass got breached. I just got to update my master password and I'm all right, set. Right. Wrong, 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 wrong. Why is it wrong, right? It goes back to what happened. They have an offline copy at their disposal of what your vault looked like cryptographically at the time you used that master password, which means it doesn't matter how many times you rotate your master password now, what they're cracking is what your master password was when the breach took place. So this is a big game over aspect of it is that in order to, if you want to assume that you're at risk, whether it's because you're a high profile target or whether it's because maybe you're an old LastPass customer and some of these configurations aren't correct, your only recourse is to rotate every single password you care about in that vault in addition to the master password um, to have some level of confidence that if you do eventually get cracked, it's not an issue. Um, and again, this is generalizing a little bit some things around 2FA not being enabled and other things for those individual accounts. But the key takeaway is, my concern is, I'm sure there are a lot of con- non-technical aware consumers that use these products, read these breaches and think, oh, yeah. let's go update my master password. And they never think about why that's not an actual mitigation in this case. Okay. Yeah. So it's smart to change it. That doesn't fix, that doesn't necessarily fix it, right? From that perspective in the short term, probably go in there just in case they try to do brute force against that account using the old password that's taken care of. Turn on 2MFA for sure, just to make sure that's covered kind of piece. I, I think most of our listeners probably were beyond that to begin with, right? They probably were doing that. So, but it is a little bit, I mean, from a, you know, you did an inventory and got a certain number. I did an inventory, got a certain number. And that number's a lot. Like it's a lot. It, you know, and I, I use the notes functionality in that quite a bit to store some sensitive things that I don't necessarily want out in the clear uh in, in their notes. It was was the notes feature one of the encrypted or not? Fortunately, yes. You would think people who brand things called secure notes would like actually encrypt that field. (laughs) So that would have been a that would have been a game over, right? That would have been a mass exodus. I think they may still have an exodus of some kind, but that would have been that would have been a definitely a step worse. Yeah, I I can't um, I can't imagine. Uh, Tony said he went through and changed all of his passwords and. I ironically, I had been going through and going using the security function to say, hey, what are where do I have similar passwords? Right. And and I still had some, you know, I kind of have a throwaway password that I use that then I change right after I open it up. And um, uh, so I'd been going through doing all those. And that was that got what me thinking. I'm like, oh, man, I got a, I've got a lot. <laughs> I got in it. In it it's, I mean, it's a weekend. It's a, it's probably, yeah. but it's oh, probably it worth, yeah, it's probably worth the, what, when you think, uh, when you think about making a change, we're going to talk about some specific, well, anything else before we shift gears a little bit, anything else from a last path side of things that you, that you want to cover? Um, not specifically with LastPass. I would say there are some other tangential aspects to what I think folks have learned about LastPass that make you think more broadly about we'll just say password managers at large. I think one of the big ones for me is when you talk about customers who want their 
passwords in the cloud versus only in local storage and or somewhere in between. Um, I know it's been a very hot topic on this show. Um, I know it's a hot topic elsewhere, but you know, some of the things that makes uh, folks like myself squeamish is thinking about how, again, even if you have all of this great encryption, crypto cryptographic setup, for your passwords, web security still plays a huge role in the overall assurance of whether or not you have a good solution. And so one of the areas that maybe we'll get into a little bit on the show is just, you know, there are other risks associated with using this type of software that a lot of people overlook. I think one of the biggest ones that get overlooked is autofill, right? It's one of the best convenience, ease of use features, that is why folks use these capabilities. And so what's the classic story? Well, the classic story is you install this password extension in your browser, it's on your iPad, it's on your iPhone, whatever, and it's unlocked for a period of time. So let's say you choose to unlock it for three hours at a time, and you want to go to website ABC and have it autofilled. Well, you better hope that website ABC didn't have someone, you know, cross-site script or drop a little JavaScript sidecar into load loading into your browser because all they have to do is craft that client-side script to try and hit and use your open running instance to echo back your password because your vault's open, your encryption's there. So did they have to crack your encryption? No. All they had to do is take advantage of a web exploit and the fact that you do autofill and bam, the credentials gone. Um, And so there are some of those considerations that I think a lot of the average consumers of these products aren't thinking of. Um, And so I really don't necessarily um, think anyone is being too paranoid when they make the decision to be a local only password vault. Um, Now, what I'll talk about as we get into migration strategies and alternatives, there's actually a middle ground. um, And it's particularly a a nice benefit of Bitwarden, which is, was one of the main reasons why I made the switch. Um, But I'll talk a a little bit about kind of what's the middle ground between um, tinfoiling your passwords into local only vaults and saying, eh, I'm going to go to general purpose uh, cloud password managers and and um, we'll, we'll pivot there. But I think uh, we'll at least wrap the last pass portion of, of this segment. Let me uh, let me take a few questions from chat because I think there's some good ones out there. Tony asks, so is it reasonable? I mean, we'll end it with this part. Is it reasonable to stay with LastPass at all? Is there any conditions you'd stay for? Um. Consumers have choice. It's a big market. There's a lot of options out there. Um, If you follow the guidance to clean up after this incident, is there any residual damage to you? Probably not. Um, But is there an inherent reason or thing that's compelling you to continue to do business with them? I'd also argue probably not. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a really, it's a consumer choice at this point. Um, Customers have had reduced trust as a result of this event. And I think it's going to, for some InfoSec people, these are non-negotiables. It's I'm out this, you know, never again. I think for other folks, it's going to be, 
okay, it is what it is. I've rotated the passwords I care about and I'm moving on. But, you know, the the cost or the time to do a migration is going to be more than what it's yeah. worth to me. Yeah. And so they'll stay with LastPass. Um, and then there'll be folks in the middle kind of listening, reading articles and trying to read the tea leaves to decide, is it time to, uh, you know, double down or, or, or jump ship? So I don't know that I have a strong conviction for the consumer on this one, but I can certainly say from an InfoSec perspective and from a um, just educated buyer perspective, there's a lot of options out there. And mm -hmm. if you're willing to try something different and you're willing to learn a different platform, um, and find something that's ease of use, I think um, there's no reason not to give that a try. If I acted like with LastPass, if I acted and changed, I went through every single account and changed the passwords, they make that kind of easy in some regards. They've got some automatic ones that go in there and do that for you. I uh, use it as an opportunity to update 2FA on sites that support it, make sure that's working and turned on if it's not already done. Uh, do I, is that, is that, a, is that mitigation enough? In other words, since I've changed everything, including my master password on that platform, um, have I, have I mitigated it at least for now, taking out the trust for the company and knowing that yeah. not everything is encrypted and some of those kinds of things. Is that enough or could it be enough? I think it could for some, right? Yeah. Especially if think, you know, smaller vaults, maybe you care about the banks most, then maybe you care about email the next most. And then after that, it's like, uh, here's these one or two websites I haven't logged into in three years, probably not a big deal. Yeah, if you go turn on 2FA and some of the places you really care about, um, you've probably done a fair bit of mitigation exercise on the cheap. Um, but again, it's, you know, it's, it's a risk calculation at yeah. that point. And so I think yeah. everyone's risk tolerance is going to be different. If I am one of those old accounts and I have the small iteration number, is there a way to change that? Is there so that I can have the high number on my account? I'm, I'm still a little, not totally clear on how that works and that's okay. But, but is there a way for me to change that on LastPass today? So I don't know if LastPass offers a configurable for it or if it just shows you what you're at and if there's a magic button to upgrade you to the next number. Um, one of the things that's really cool about Bitwarden is that you can set exactly the number of iterations that you want for your KDF function. Um, so if you want to go up to the OWASP standard, go right ahead, set it to 310,000 iterations. If you want to be at 100,000, which will be a little bit more performant on mobile devices, go for it, right? So they give you the freedom and choice there. Um, I would not be surprised if LastPass also does this now, to be clear, but as someone who is not a LastPass user, I would have to uh, include that in the show notes. I think Jim uh, Jim Shoemaker says you can. You absolutely can change that um, count. Does it matter, um, uh, Jim, and put in chat where that's available um, on the site, would it matter if I did, let's just say a thousand, is a thousand and one any different? Should I make it a weird number? No, Should, putting a, a randomness in the number has <laughs> no cryptographic value whatsoever, right? So it's really an order of magnitude thing that we're talking about here. So um, I recommend that no customer run below a hundred thousand iterations. Anything you want to do above that, all the more power to you. Bob asked a good question. He says, uh, how does one actually know when they've been successful. I think he's talking about the hackers being successful. How do you know when that ABC one, two, three or whatever is, is there like a 
like, how do they know they've achieved, they've cracked it. They've, you know, say they've got, I have, I've, uh, I have a address, a super secure location address in my secure notes. How do they know they've gotten something out of that? Or what if I stored, uh, Bitcoin, uh, hashes in there that are random crazy. How are they going to know that from anything else? Yeah. So, I mean, going back to the concept of hash functions, right? It's not, does the hash function look close? It has to be exactly correct because it's a unique function for what that plain text password is. So for the hacker, all they have to know is, and let's, let's just talk about the case of the rainbow attack, right? If I know that this rainbow table value of the hash function equals exactly what is stored there, I know what my plain text is, I'm done. Um, if I don't know that, then I'm, putting the best brute force method that I can to cryptographically attack and try to derive what the master password is by generating a whole lot of hashes from my plain text guesses and seeing, does that hash match what's getting stored here? Now, in the case of the KDF function, it's not just doing that once. You have to line up and match the number of KDF iterations that were used with the hash function and the password that you're attempting. So that's another thing is like, if the attacker doesn't know what KDF iterations were used in the configuration, now that's also harder, right? Because now they have to compare every hash they compute for every plain text that they attempt at every iteration interval they want to assert on, um, which means they are spending exponentially more time per password that they guess than if... KDF isn't in place at a high iteration count. What about a hybrid approach? We're going to talk about RoboForm here in just a second, but what about a hybrid approach? In other words, splitting that, splitting that attack surface up across some of these, maybe using some of them that are really good at one thing, but maybe not good at another and taking advantage of their strengths and, from that standpoint, is there any value just as I think through this to maybe dividing? If I'm going to change things over the course of a weekend or two, would, would I be smart to maybe look at a couple different platforms and, and maybe pick two or three to use? I don't think it hurts from a becoming an educated consumer and finding the thing that works best for you. Um, I do think there is an inherent complexity in having to maintain multiple password managers and decide which one to use for what win and remembering what was stored in which password manager. I think there's also a convenience factor that's a tricky there, right? For example, if both password managers have autofill enabled, it's kind of a race condition, right? Who's going to autofill what, when, and uh, is true, it going to work true. out? And <laughs> maybe that doesn't true. happen if both password managers aren't mm. storing the same credential, but you know, just getting compatibility that the extensions play nicely together in the browser at the same time is probably not a foregone conclusion. So I'm not a huge fan of the hybrid model for this. I think it's definitely makes sense to kind of comparison shop and kick the tires on a few. Um, but once you kind of find the one that works right for you and has good security principles, I kind of recommend going one direction um, okay. long term. We should talk about this every week because the chat room is never as active <laughs> as it is right now. If you're listening to this on the podcast and you want to go back, lots of great stuff. I can't cover it all. Uh, in the chat, if you want to go back, uh, catch the live version, the Average Guy TV on YouTube. 
come to the live version. You can see the chat. Lots of great chat going on. It, w- would I give it away if I told how many password iterations I had on my LastPass account? Would that be a, if somebody knew that number, would that be a bad thing? If they knew my name, got to my account, knew the number of iterations, would that give things away? It's not great, but it's okay. not like you're giving the farm away either. Um, I think, um, again, so yeah, so so some folks may be like, well, if it's you know not exactly 100,000, but I do 100,001, is that going to get them? Well, probably not because they're just going to try every sequential iteration. And so <laughs> yeah. really, it's yeah. not like you're just shooting in the dark and then moving on to the next plain text. Um, but so I, do I think it's giving away the farm? No. I think all aspects, though, of configuration of cryptography should not be known to the adversary in an ideal setup. Um, the attacker should be able to know and understand the algorithm. And even reading and understanding the algorithm, they should never be able to um, compromise the integrity and confidentiality of your data. Um, and in order to do that, um, protecting configurables. What I, what do I mean by configurables? Something like the KDF, something like what the salt is. Those are really important things, right? Because when those configurables become exposed, it reduces the effectiveness and narrows the attack surface that the adversary is concerned with when it comes to cracking the password. Uh, Bob is encouraging me to say it and then just change it. It's a high number. I'm just going to leave it at that. I, I was, is when you open the show and you started talking about this, I mean, this was a, that's a, this was a real learning thing for me. I'm like, Oh, like I'm an old customer and like, who knows now I I've been using a fairly long password for a while, but who knows how many iterations there were on there. Yeah. And so, uh, Jim Shoemaker, thanks for helping me find that. That is a, uh, if you're in LastPass, let me go back. I will show this on screen. Let's see if I can find his instructions again. There is a way to do it. But but Christian, it was a concern of mine. All of a sudden, here it is. Uh, if, you're, if you're a LastPass user, go to the Vault, Count Settings, General, Advanced Settings, Password Iterations. That's a, it's a ways down on that list. And you can see the iterations. That's the right spot, right, Christian? That's what you're talking yeah. about on that? Okay. Mine was a fairly large number, so I feel pretty good about that. You had, um, I mean, you've talked about RoboForm for a long time. You, you did a little a little looking into that as well. What'd you, what did you discover there? I got smart, and the smarter I got, the sadder I got. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, unfortunately, I think that's how life goes sometimes, right? Um, the smarter you get, the harder it falls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so with RoboForm, there's kind of some interesting things going on. Um one of the first things I would say is get to know your company. What do I mean by that? Get to know who owns the product, who develops the product, what their team is, um, where they're staffed out of, where their backgrounds are. And I would say, you know, in the case of RoboForm, um, not really a, a pretty unique shop, the way they're set up, who their customers are, how they got started, um, pretty unique backgrounds there, right? And um, do you compare it to something like LastPass, very different level of scope of size of the company, the revenue that they were doing, um, what kind of customer base they served, et cetera. So that gives you a little bit of spidey senses kind of right there. Um, but I think one of the big things that attracted folks to RoboForm is that they were one of the probably biggest names that resisted forcing users to go to password sync everywhere 
they always gave their customers the ability for kind of local storage, local vault only. And for most of the other big names like LastPass, it was, you know, sync everywhere, go to the cloud subscription model. That was the name of the game, right? So if you're looking for something that was kind of this, the options there if I want it, but if I don't want it, I can stay local only. Uh, Roboform didn't appear to be a bad option for quite some time for that for for that reason. Um, but like all things, um, there are some things that start to give you pause. Um, certainly kind of doing some research on the company and how it's structured and its background, one area of pause for me. Um, another area of pause is you can go find this wonderful case study of on Roboform from 2014 on how secure is Roboform. And it's kind of this five minute challenge write up that uh, Paul Reviews did, which is a great write up. And it, it talks through kind of two big issues that were found with Roboform at that time. One was for their online web vault version back again in circa 2014, total violation of um, zero knowledge encryption going on here, right? So the password is ending up going to the server. The server is doing decryption in these cases. Um, demonstrations of plain text password in the web form. Like these are pretty big red flag type concerns around representations for some of their products. Um, another big red flag was they demonstrated the ability to bypass the pin unlock feature on the Android version of the app so that you didn't even need to type in your master password on your phone to read from the vault. You could just alter a configuration setting in the thing and it bypassed all of that setup to have you start reading content out of the vault, which was like a, okay, that's pretty much a, a red flag stop, you know, uh, foul on the play type moment. So um, there's enough data with a variety and a lot of these. I mean, so today it's LastPass, right? But a lot of these folks as, you know, fairly saturated market now, lots of fish, different size ecosystems. But for a lot of them for a long time, in order to have the secret sauce and make a company out of it and do the whole sales PR marketing, there wasn't a concept of, oh yeah, we're going to give you the source code for how we use our product, right? Um, and this is one of the key features that wins me over time and time again about why I now choose Bitwarden over a lot of the competition. Because you look at how they got founded, where they're based, how they got their funding, who in the research community has validated them and how, one of the big things you realize is that Bitwarden is fully open source. So they're both a for-profit company. They have premium models and features. They do licensing that's based off of, you know, they have their own mechanism for doing, um, they have digitally signed license files. Like, so even though the source code is right there and you can go read how it works, like all fully open source, they're, it's still a paid product. And this is huge, for, huge, huge, huge from an InfoSec perspective because now I don't have to trust a white paper or I don't have to take a company's word for it. Um, if I'm an information security um, enthusiast or 
subject matter expert, I can go validate for myself whether or not I feel their implementation is correct. What's furthermore really cool about this is that it's not just the client that they're giving you the source code for. One of the second winning features for Bitwarden for me that almost no one else is doing right now is the ability to self-host the equivalent of Bitwarden Cloud or LastPass Cloud, right? So if you want to sync everywhere, but you don't trust a centralized server with a name that everyone knows where they're going to go try and hit up your credentials or do a JavaScript attack against that DNS name, great, no problem. If you still want the syncing features and device everywhere, self-host the Bitwarden server in an environment of your choosing. Pick the DNS name of your choosing that's going to be random and non-obvious mm. so that a JavaScript mm. attack can't easily take advantage of you, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for me, right then and there, the fact that it was open source and could be verified independently by security experts and two, had that self-hosting option, which to me is really the first conversation around a hybrid option between all local vault storage and giving over control to a cloud storage model by that password company, those really vaulted Bitwarden ahead of a lot of other options that are on the market right mm -hmm. now. Christian, I host with Maple Grove Partners. You've been a great partner to the average guy TV for a lot of years. It's the reason it actually exists. So are you saying I could, could I put it somewhere since I host with you, could I put it somewhere there that's fairly obscure? I mean, even creating a path that's fairly obscure so that it's not, uh, it, you know, it's not in some obvious location and then be able to sync, you know, be able from anywhere, phone, home, work, those kinds of things to be able to get that done. Is that something that, that would, would work very easily if I hosted at Maple, Maple Grove? Park? Yeah, right, right on. So whether you choose to come host it with us at Maple Grove or another host of your choosing um, or you self host in your own environment. Um, yeah, this is a client web server application. Um, you can set up a DNS name, you can get it. And, it, and it, what's great is because it's the same exact source code, it's not like learning the self-hosted Bitwarden versus the like online Bitwarden. Like it is the same exact thing as when you go and use the, the managed version of Bitwarden. Um, and remember, like the key here is like, if you exist on the web, it's not like it's invisible. It's not like it's the dark web. It's not like it's completely off the grid. If someone really wants to go digging, they're probably going to be able to find some clues as to where you might be. But one, it's going to defeat a lot of average kind of script kitty type stuff. And two, it is still important to remember that the ultimate security of these things is going to be that master password complexity and following the right cryptographic best practices. But I absolutely think self-hosting the server is giving folks a real world option that aren't quite comfortable being all in one camp are still kind of sad that they're only local and that they have to, you know, go log onto the desktop to then get the password to then go put it in the phone. And so I'm a really, I'm a big fan of the self-hosted option because um, it's that, it is that hybrid approach that I think a lot of customers are looking for. The non-hosted option or the non-synced option oftentimes leads us to choose poor passwords because it's like, uh, okay, I need these kind of things to be the same because it's just too much work for me to go find them, to get them, to whatever. Do you think the the that 
obscurity, security through obscurity, that in the sense of self-hosting, is that better than the chance that you get lazy with your passwords and and they, they may not be as strong as they could be if you picked, because I'm sure Bitwarden's got the ability to, to just generate, generate something random for me, 25. Yep. I mean, in most cases, I say, how many can you take? And then I, I just make it that number, right? So that I'm getting the uh, the absolute longest password possible. It better, better, worse. It, thinking in the sense of it's is it's probably better to have the in this case have the convenience so you create long passwords than maybe to get stuck in an area of inconvenience so you're creating less secure passwords. I don't know. Right. I mean, and a great example of that, right, is like, well, is it more secure to write sticky notes of your passwords and put them all over your monitor so that when you're when your EA walks by your computer screen, she can write down, you know, she can use all the passwords that, you know, so it's like, it's like, where is the opportunity threat environment, right? And why I would argue security through obscurity isn't security because it's not. Um, and that, you know, you got to follow the cryptographic best practices first and foremost, every single time. Um, I don't see the self-hosted option as security through obscurity outright. Um, but it gives you a lot of flexibility. So for example, um, Justin brings up a great, uh, point in chat and it's one that a lot of folks are doing is maybe you want to be able to sync but you're still super skittish. You don't want to put the self-hosted server fully out on the public World Wide web. So what do you do? You can run that server and run it on a VPN. And as long as all your devices that you want to sync can connect onto that VPN tunnel, now you have multiple layers of cryptography going on, right? You have the cryptographic tunnel to go from the World Wide web to your intranet. Then you have um, the cryptography of doing application level TLS security to talk to the web server. Then you have the cryptography of zero knowledge master password, then decrypting something that's sitting at rest. So it adds this kind of third layer of protection that really would be a very desirable option for the uber paranoid. Um, and VPN technology is dime a dozen. It's super cheap. It's very easy to deploy for the consumer. Um, my experience setting up Bitwarden server, um, pretty simple. I mean, it's not going to be someone, it's not going to be something that someone with at least basic knowledge of Linux is going to tackle. Um, but it wasn't like I had to spend five days deciphering the instructions and finding the missing things and adjusting a bunch of things to match their environment. I mean, it really was once you stand up the server and you're ready to do the Bitwarden install, it was about honestly 10, 15 minutes to do the actual core, get Bitwarden server running in a happy way. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty much everything else you want to do around that is also uh, fairly cheap to add that additional level of assurance if that's something you're interested in. Christian, our friends who can't, they're not going to do these things that we're talking yeah. about. LastPass was a nice option because you could, it just worked for the average person. Bitwarden, same, like, can you recommend it the same way to individuals and say, yeah, they'll host it and sync it and it's worth the change? I can because in the, in the um, least technical savvy consumer base 
it's really not that much different from LastPass, right? You go to bitwarden.com instead of lastpass.com. You know, it's the same kind of web login experience and capability. Um, the types of features you're going to see are very similar. So some of the features I really like that I think LastPass probably by and large does as well. Um, the autofill is excellent on Bitwarden. I mean, it was really great. One of the things I also really liked about it was, and especially coming from RoboForm um, and, and not doing the cloud-based version of RoboForm to this, was the ability to set up uh, time-based one-time passwords and set that up directly in the Bitwarden app. I was able to get rid of Duo Mobile completely. I never have to look at my phone again now for Authenticator or Duo or the code. Like I'm done with all of that, right? And so what's really cool is not only is Bitwarden acting as my 2FA for websites, but with the autofill, it'll put that code right into your clipboard. So all you have to do is control V the, the token code into the form, which by the way, super smart too, because yet another way to defeat some clever types of client side um, attacks when you have to still paste it but it's in your Windows buffer, which is at a higher privilege level than your browser. Like lots of little clever stuff there, right? Um, but wicked easy to use autofill and lots of great security features, right? So their reporting feature has uh, one for exposed passwords, reused passwords, weak passwords, unsecure website utilization, inactive use of multi-factor and breached accounts that your emails are discovered in. And that's all on top on if you're really paranoid and you still want to use the managed thing, you're not really interested in self-hosting, and you're just worried that somehow your master password is not cryptographically enough secure, um, you can enable two-step login on your master password. So it supports Authenticator, YubiKey, Duo, Fido, email. So like for me, I really see that there's something for everyone in something like Bitwarden, but foundationally, if you want to use it as a kind of, hey, I'm coming from LastPass, I need to migrate because I just have decided I'm done with LastPass, but I'm not really ready to get consumed into all of the enthusiast features. Like to me, you can configure Bitwarden to match the personality of the consumer, which is really awesome. Yeah, I'm, I am I like the idea of having you host it for me yeah. <laughs> and then, and, and then um, uh, you know, build, build it from there. If I was going to, if I was going to move and um, yeah, there's some ways to migrate. You, I think that you can export out of one and import into the other. Is that really a best practice or should I sit down with, with LastPass going, going password site by site, note by note, uh, might be a good time to clean some things out too and and move them one by one, changing them as I move them so that I know I got them all. Would that, wh which would you recommend? Export, import, get it done quicker or or maybe I'm missing an option. Uh, it's kind of, my option is option C, which is a weird merging of options A and B, right? So for me, um, I do think export, import is the way to go from a, not only convenience factor, but making sure you actually migrated all the things before you blow away the old environment, right? So you didn't like have the human error of, oh, I skipped over one, oops. Um, but the thing to remember about export import that like people need to like sear in their brain, right? When you export all of these tools, export to CSV, comma separated value, plain text, 
So when it's sitting on your hard disk, it's plain text, which means when you finish importing to that new tool, you need to make sure you have deleted that file. Do not let it sit on your hard drive because otherwise, what's the point of having a password manager, right? Like it violates the first tenet of what we're trying to do here. So I, I do think export import is the right thing for consumers, but you must you must be paying attention and delete that export when you're done so that your passwords are properly protected. So that's step one. Step two, once you're imported into a new tool, I do absolutely recommend doing a top-down. It's painful. It's gonna take it's gonna take a day. Just just get over it. But I think it's worth it. If I mean if you care about not having to worry about breaches and getting owned in the whole nine yards, I think it's worth sitting down for eight hours and starting at the top and have it autofill login with what you're using today. Go do the change password. And that way you're migrating to the next version all in the new software. You're learning how the new software works Uh, and it's just getting all saved and set up right there. Then let's say as part of that rotation, you want to turn on 2FA. Well, great. You're already in the new environment. Um, So I recommend that is kind of the move sequence. The export import part of it, if you do it right, again, takes about 15 minutes and you're up and running in the new software. It's really a no frills thing. Getting the Bitwarden plugin set up, same thing. I mean, it was about 10 minutes for me to set up the plugin in my browser, get it configured and tuned up the way I wanted and have the settings set up. Very easy to use. Um, The longest part of a migration, I think, is if you want to do it right, you should go through your assets and do those rotations and do those cleanups. Um, And so, again, you can also choose to kind of take a risk calculus approach of like, okay, I'm going to focus on the things that matter to me most, my bank accounts, my emails, my medical accounts, whatever, and then maybe do them in batches so that you're like not falling asleep at the keyboard. But um, I definitely recommend um, that you just, the strategy is get to the new thing as soon as possible, blow away the old stuff behind you with great certainty um, (laughs) and then get, get on with rotating. Well, every time I change a password, I do that kind of anyways, as you go through, change it, make sure it's the new information has gotten there and then sign out, <laughs> try to sign back in with the new, with the new stuff, just to make sure I got it all. Um, what about, okay. So I used LastPass authenticator, uh, because I got the backup. I mean, it backs up nicely with my account and some of those other kind of things. Where do I go from, where do I where do I go now? If I'm going to leave them, first of all, is that part of the breach? Uh, we haven't really even talked about that. You know, the, the authenticator app on your phone. Is that part yeah, of the so breach? That, yeah. Those, none of those apps are part of the breach. Or, and many of them, for example, like Duo, they're not connected apps. They don't have to connect or do anything. They basically take advantage of that QR code or that one-time secret you put in to basically synchronize based on time and generate a value that can only be correct for that login sequence. And so, um, yeah, those apps are not part of the concern space here. But what you end up doing is, let's say you're already using the Authenticator app or one of these other apps. What you'll have to do is you'll log into that service with your current password, with the whatever app you're using, you'll unenroll from MFA for that account 
and then you'll re-enroll into MFA using the Bitwarden time-based OTP. Um, and then at that point, you can remove it from Authenticator or Duo because it's all just going to be self-integrated into Bitwarden at that point. Oh, okay. And so again, another great optimization where I don't have to have multiple ecosystems to do login. It's not like, oh crap, I don't have my phone. Let me go get the Duo mobile app out. Like, no, that's, mm -hmm. that's done now, right? Mm -hmm. I can have 2FA security on the cheap without having to have my phone around. And that's just as secure? Yeah. Yeah, okay. it's the same. I mean, there's really two um, types of OTPs. There's uh, time-based um, and, oh, I'm going to skewer myself, HOTP, <laughs> which I always forget. Um, Hash-based, yeah, thank you. Mm. Um, and so they're slightly different. They're both uh, cryptographically secure, and um, the Bitwarden implementation is just as good as any good old average TOTP uh, implementation. So yeah, I've always used, I'm so used to going to my phone for two factor. On it was one those, of the biggest, you know. most enjoyable things about migrating to Bitwarden was that oh. one feature. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to try it out. I'll have to try. Cause I probably won't. I mean, I'll, I'll probably want to get in there and give it a try. I could probably use their web version to start with and try a few accounts and see what I like. See, see how it works. Do some, do some things that are are low for me that are just kind of low quality. Um, be able to get it done. Okay, last we're we're gonna we're we're going on, but but uh, last thing I want to ask you about is, I thought can't we be done with passwords? <laughs> like why, it's twenty twenty three. Twenty twenty three. Why are we it's still shocking. talking about passwords? Like, I, I it really is amazing, isn't it? Um, you know, I laugh. It's going to be like in the description of this podcast. Like it feels insane to me that we're talking about password managers as this hot thing in 2023. Here we are. Um, yeah. Um, I think what's been commonplace in the industry over the last few years is the phrase, something you have, something you know. Um, something you have is that multi-factor, something you know seems to be passwords. But um, you've seen a lot of movement from the something you know being a conventional password to being something more akin to like a pin, right? Like when you roll up to the ATM to get money out, it's you're not entering a password, you're putting a four-digit pin. Why? Because you there's something you have, this nice a credit card or debit card that has all the features right there as the something that you have. Um, and so I am, so I think, I think that the, the next switch that hasn't quite happened yet outside of enterprise and to general consumer is forcing on people by default, the option of, hey, give us a pin and you must have MFA. And then your login is a combination of your pin and your your code sequence, whether that's a token, whether that's a thing you're reading, whether that's a haptic, it doesn't really matter. Um, pin being the something you know is, as you can see, the banking industry probably has adopted it longer for almost anyone else in the enterprise. It's worked quite well. Um, and so I think the more the industry just pushes, here are 50 bajillion different ways to do MFA for free. 
and these companies start saying, okay, by default, we're doing this. I don't know what it's going to take them to say, you just can't do a password anymore. It's just MFA or it's nothing. Unfortunately, um, it feels like there needs to be some type of forcing function so that once that is the thing, the password manager becomes way less about storing the secret and hopefully way more about the other features like the autofill, where you go to generation of that MFA, et cetera. And they should never have a need to store your pin unless you want different pins across all your sites, which maybe you do, you know, it's not a bad best practice. Right. Um, but uh, it's shocking. Um, and you yeah. get into some of the other things, you know, why aren't we doing things like biometrics or fingerprints or other things? I just don't think the cost is there yet for the average consumer. Sure, for your phone or something to do think something like Face ID, I think that's a great middle ground. But it's I, I don't think we're at the point where biometrics are at the same level of assurance and foolproofness at the consumer level compared to what these MFA capabilities can do. So I think something you know, something you have should be the bar for quite some time. But I think the discussion needs to move away from passwords being the something that you know. And that's where we're not at, apparently, 10 years later. Yeah. <laughs> It's just crazy. I'm just like, come on, guys. We can, and why can't with biometrics? Why can't it be two things? Why couldn't it be both face and fingerprint? I think sometimes we think it's got to be one. If I've got my phone, I mean, uh, the the Android um, uh, one of the versions used, the, you know, the it had the fingerprint thing behind it. Why can't you use both? Why couldn't we have a voice print functionality that you use both facial and voice? Some of those kinds of things where. I always feel like we've got to get to that one thing. And why couldn't it be a combination of a bunch of easy things? You know, pin, face, finger, boom, you're in, right? Type deal. Those would all be easy to do and hard to replicate. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cer certainly the more factors involved, the uh, lower the risk. Um, consumer yeah. Yeah. ease of use, I'm sure, is really a uh, big factor in all of that. And um, not all hardware ecosystems and um, not not all ecosystems play the same and have the same level of capability and compute, uh, which makes it difficult. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and not all areas of the world uh, where everybody has the ability to have all those things, and yet they still they still want to do business in those areas, and so you've got to. You're playing to a least common denominator. And right now, a password is fairly free, <laughs> right? I mean, from a implementation standpoint of what the what the consumer can generate, I love your idea of a pin. I love your idea. I, I like a six-digit pin because those are pretty easy. They're a little more complex than four, little, but a little easier to remember. And then that was something else. A pin and a a pin and a thumb, you know, a um, you know, a a, a fingerprint. Uh, a pin and a face ID. Uh, Microsoft's doing that pretty well on Windows. And, um, and you know, for if you turn that on and configure it that way, and that seems to be a pretty secure way of getting, you know, of getting in there. I don't, uh, I don't have to use a password for a lot of those things anymore. We're using a six digit and a, you know, and face. 
uh, which which is which is pretty cool. Christian, would you add anything else? Did we miss anything as you're looking at the notes? You did a great job of covering those, but but anything I missed or any final thoughts? Yeah, no, I think uh, looking at this, we have pretty good coverage. So um, I'm I'm going to say that's a wrap. Yeah, no, I feel pretty good about it. I think you've given me a good um, you've given me a good plan of attack on this. I think I'm going to give Bitwarden a look. Say, okay, is this gonna is this gonna work for me? I think I'm gonna make I, I'm personally gonna make a uh a, a, um account by account conversion. I want to go through and see what they've got. I wanna I'm gonna make that. I don't I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not comfortable with a CSV file <laughs> with everything on it sitting on my hard drive. That's me, right? If you've got a if you if you feel okay doing that, I think you can get that done. And then I think um I, I think if I like it, I, I think I may go with an option with you. And I think others probably for folks that are hosting with you, that could be something you could work with them on to get set up if that if they're already hosting. And if they're not hosting, you still have plans for 10 bucks that they could 10 bucks a month host something else. And this is that a pretty easy setup for you to get an instance rolling, like to get a Bitwarden instance rolling for me? Is that a pretty easy setup or? Yeah, that, I'd, li- I'd like to get it to the point where I just have a pre-canned um, deployment instance, but uh, to get a to get a VM up that runs the basic application and keeps it up to date, um, yeah. pretty straightforward. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, and Tony says, "Hey, it's free to try." <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, give, give it a try. So, I think that's. I'm actually kind of, as I think about going through and cleaning up. I mean, when I when I went through to check for weak passwords the last time I did this, I deleted a whole bunch of accounts. And I went, I'm like, yeah, I'm not using this thing anymore. There was a time I was trying a whole bunch of different stuff. And and you know, I'm like, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. I had a <laughs> I had a bunch of intern accounts that we had created back when you and others were interns at Gallup. And and I was like, Yeah, we're not using these you know, 2014 accounts anymore, they should probably be deactivated, right? So they're not just sitting out there. I think it's more than just stop using them. I think if we think like if you created this Google account seven years ago and you're just not using it, you should really deactivate it, right? Not let it just sit there. Maybe eventually Google will come through and clean it up and deactivate it themselves, but it's probably a good idea, right? To go through and deactivate those. If you're not using it, deactivate it. Yeah, get it, get it done. All right. Well, Christian, thanks for coming on and thanks for being a part of this. And uh, thanks for being a, a great uh, member of the community and helping us out. This is, it's, it's actually been super helpful because I, I was on the fence a little bit. Uh, Jim Shoemaker, before he left, was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to leave. <laughs> and, and that's okay, right? You, you have to, I think you have to determine your own, you know, your own threat profile, your own footprint. What are you comfortable with? There are some things that I know that I, you know, that I'd put in LastPass that I'm like, oh boy, okay, I'm not comfortable thinking that those could be at risk. I'm going to need to change them, and I'm going to need to move them, and uh, and I'm going to have to do that here um, uh, pretty quick. So, um, good, good conversation. A couple of reminders if you want to join us, and Christian's out there in our Discord group. Um, he's a pretty busy guy, so it's not like he's just chatting all the time, but. <laughs> If you want to get out there uh, on Discord, theaverageguy.tv slash Discord, join that group. Super, uh, fairly small, but but fairly mighty. So if you, some great conversations 
there was a whole uh there was a whole cloud flare and tunneling conversation that went on. <laughs> I'll be honest, I had no idea what they were talking about. So it can be as simple as barbecue, beer, and bourbon, or it can uh be uh as complex as cloud flare flare tunneling and some of those other kind of things. Join us in the Discord group, the average guy TV slash Discord. Um, if you want to join on Patreon, the average guy.tv slash Patreon, you can do that. I'm doing my taxes uh, right now, Christian. It's tax time here, right in the US. And uh, I was thinking, oh, it's another year. I, I better go to Patreon. Uh, I've got some claiming to do. And uh, and so you can, well, there's another thing to keep in another password manager thing. I would always lose my tax software password. Maybe that's a good thing. I didn't even know what it was. And then uh, I'd have to go reset it every year. And uh, same same this year. Um, you can join us live every Thursday, 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern, out here at TheAverageGuy.tv live. Big thanks to everyone who joined in the chat. Lots of chat conversation, especially early if you're a, podcast listener i usually say come out to the video to like if we're doing demonstrations and stuff not the case for this one but for the chat it that may be an interesting use case to come out to the live so go to youtube search the average guy tv and you'll see the live page everything we do live goes there first and then i edit it move it over to uh, my youtube account jim collison on youtube i think it's just youtube slash jim youtube.com slash jim collison get you out there but those are the edited versions. If you want to catch this live one, because the chat room does not migrate over to the the edited version, and you want to follow along in the chat, I think this one would be <laughs> would be worth it to come over. And yes, John, it's tax time. Change your tax software password. Get that done, and um, so you can you can uh, you can catch the chat on that, and I think you'll you'll learn a few things from it as well. We'll be back next week, and I don't have the list up on who's on next week. Oh, I know who's on. Bob and Ryan are coming back. They'll have a CES update from all the things that are CES. Christian, you follow? Did you follow CES at all I, this year? Things going on? Not terribly, but there was the whole you know emotional car that BMW did, and you know, a couple of weird things here and there, but not not too much this year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some good stuff. I'm. Yeah, there's some amazing things coming out. Um, oh, don't forget for this show also, Christian wrote some really good show notes. So head out to theaverageguy.tv slash, if you're listening live, this won't work yet, but slash HGG559. And uh, you can get his pretty awesome, he does a nice job. He really does write world-class show notes. So when I say that, I'm only thinking of Christian doing that. Thanks for coming out. If you listen live with that, we'll say goodbye, everybody. Good night, everyone.